Will you pray with me? Father, it is so good to be able to worship you. Father, to ponder the great name that is the name of Jesus. Lord, today as we celebrate your truth, as we celebrate our moms, I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to sense the presence of your Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that we could see wonderful things in your word. And Lord, ultimately, that we would align our hearts with your truth so that our lives will produce the fruit that you have created us to produce. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, let me first of all say Happy Mother's Day. It's one of my favorite times of the year to celebrate the mother that gave me birth and the one that I live with. And I'm grateful for the godly examples uh, that surround me. So Happy Mother's Day to all of you. I, I read a story this week about an elementary teacher who spent an entire day teaching her second grade class about magnets, what they do and how much fun they can be. And then the next day, when her class came in, she decided to give them a test. And that test included this question. My full name has six letters. The first one is M. I pick up things. What am I? And when the test papers were turned in, the teacher was astonished that more than half the class answered the question with the word mother. So while mothers do pick up things, we know, they are much more than magnets gathering the standard household litter of lunch and laundry and crushed little egos. The true significance of a mom is actually not found in what she picks up that her children leave behind, but rather in what her children pick up from what she leaves behind. In his book, Making Peace with Reality, Jerry White says that what we learn best as children are lessons that are transmitted rather than taught. Teaching is what we say, while transmission comes from what they see us do. So White argues that it is vital to the health and well-being of our family for us to strategically think about what we do and how we do it because that is what transmits the lessons that we want to teach. By the way, not only to our children, but to the other people that we love and seek to influence for God's glory. Now, the idea of transmission is right up James' alley. Studying the book of James has taught us, if it's taught us anything, that James was an intensely practical leader whose primary concern was not a believer's intent or vision or even their ambition for God, but his primary concern was their behavior. For the past couple of weeks, we've studied his intense focus on our behavioral response to God's Word, which, he says, should always be marked by humility and hospitality. In humility, we respond to God's Word by being more concerned about what God is thinking and what God is revealing that He wants us to do than we should be concerned with our own aims and desires. 
And he summed this humility up succinctly, saying, we should be quick to listen to God's word, slow to speak over God's word, and slow to become angry with God's word. That's receiving his word with humility. Hospitality to God's word means that we are receiving it with our hearts, just as we would receive a distinguished visitor in our home. We go out of the way to demonstrate that it is prioritized above every other consideration. Now today we're going to wrap up the first chapter of James. And as we do, we're going to find that he challenges us to get real about assessing our response to God's word. And he, he, it's such an important concept to him that he actually provides for us a scoring system that will enable us to evaluate the quality of our reception and response to what God has said. If we get high marks, then we can rest assured that we're transmitting the values and the behaviors that we want to transmit. If we get low marks then we need to make a mid-course correction. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to be reading the last two verses of James chapter 1. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. The religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after widows and orphans in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, to introduce this evaluation tool, James assumes... That as believers in Jesus Christ, we all have the same goal in mind. We're aiming for the same thing. But the goal that he identifies might actually offend our sensibilities and cause us to recoil a bit from the quest to get real in our faith. What, what is his assumption? What does he assume the goal is? The beginning of verse 26 says... Those who consider themselves religious. Now, the assumption appears to be that we want to be religious. And frankly, that's a problem for us because in our world, the idea of being religious not only has negative connotations, but it actually turns out to be a bit repulsive to us. See, we see religion in a very dingy light. And if religion makes us religious, then we typically don't want to have anything to do with it. See, we, we associate the quote-unquote religious with an inauthentic rigidity that cuts the heart out of the faith. We, we see them as stuffy elitists who spend their time looking down their noses at us arrogantly judging us for our failures to measure up to their high and sometimes ungodly standards. In our minds, the religious are hypocritical, holier-than-thou types who turn our stomachs and make us want to run. So from our perspective, it's understandable if James is saying that we need to see ourselves as religious, 
the way we understand it, then we don't want to have any part of it. And we certainly don't want to transmit the need to be religious to those we love. But, but listen to me, that is not at all what James is saying. The word he uses here does not equate with a loathsome legalism, but it's actually a word that is synonymous with the terms used for worship all throughout the Scripture. So if we in the 21st century want to get on the same page with James and, and understand the heart of what he is assuming we are all aspiring to, then, then we can read that verse like this. Those of you who think you are good God worshipers, or those of you who have designs on offering acceptable worship to God should consider these telltale signs of legitimacy in your evaluation. Now, surely we can agree that anyone who follows Jesus wants to know that their worship is acceptable to God, that it's fruitful for His kingdom, and is a good model for others. And that's what James is actually calling us to evaluate. How effective, how fruitful is your worship? Now, in this text of Scripture, he gives us three indicators that are moving toward the accomplishment of our goal. He says, in your honest assessment, you have to consider these three things. How you use your tongue how you serve the needy, and how you protect your heart. How you use your tongue, how you serve the needy, and how you protect your heart. So how does the acceptable God worshiper use their tongue? Look back at James 1.26. Those who consider themselves religious, good God worshipers, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Now, James says the approved worshiper, transmitter, keeps a tight rein on their tongue. The word rein is actually the word bridle. So James sees the tongue as a wild stallion that must be controlled by bit and bridle. Now immediately, we, we think of controlling the potentially negative impact of a wild, untamed animal. We bridle a horse to prevent it from going buck wild. In the same way, he says, we must bridle our tongues because when they are left unchecked, they prove to be a very destructive force. As a matter of fact, later in James chapter 3, which we'll look at, we'll see that he addresses the tongue extensively. He describes an unbridled tongue as being full of deadly poison. In other words, the tongue has the power of death in it. So James is saying if we want our worship or our lifestyle to please God, then we must begin by keeping a tight rein on our tongue, preventing it from spraying its poison and harming those that God has called us to influence. As a matter of fact, he says an untamed tongue can make our religion worthless. You can't be profane and pious at the same time. But, 
there's another side to what he's saying. Because a bridle not only prevents a horse from going wild, a bridle also enables its rider to unleash its power and potential for good. Now, do you guys know who Brown Beauty was? She was only the most famous horse of the American Revolution because legend has it that she is the horse that Paul Revere borrowed for his famous midnight ride from Boston to Concord where he cried out to the rebels, the British are coming, the British are coming. Now how did he do it? He bridled the horse and harnessed its incredible power to cover that 12 miles from Boston to Concord. And if that horse had not been bridled, Revere would have never achieved his mission. Now, like a horse, our bridled tongue is not only controlled to prevent it from running amok and wreaking havoc, but its power is harnessed to help us achieve our God-honoring mission. So what James is saying here is that if we want our worship to be worth something, pleasing to God and impacting others for good, then we must not only avoid tearing people down with our tongues with lies, gossip, and slander, but we also must harness its power to build people up, encouraging people to see God and seize His designs for their work in His kingdom. So if we want our worship to be acceptable, we have to get real and check our tongues. Second, James challenges us to serve the needy. Look at the first part of verse 27. Religion, worship, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Worship that God has no qualms with is worship that serves the needy. Now, James uses as an illustration here the poster children for neediness in the ancient world, which were the groups of widows and orphans. Clearly, we should engage in serving those groups of people. But what I want us to do is pull back a little bit from looking at a particular group that we should serve and talk about what it is about the service that we offer that makes it acceptable worship. Service to others that is offered with an expectation of a return contaminates the offering. Okay, let me say that again. Service to others that is offered with an expectation that I'll get something back contaminates my offering. In other words, if I give to get or serve to be served, then my worship is voided. Zig Ziglar famously said, you can have everything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want. And while that is... I assume a reliable truth in sales, it deceives in worship. Our worship is not acceptable if we help people get what they need so we can get what we want. If we are motivated by our desires in service, then it's not acceptable. 
That's why James qualifies the status of orphans and widows as those who are in distress. Because in the state of distress, they are completely incapable of offering anything back. They are completely focused on themselves getting out of that which threatens them. So we can't swoop in to help with the hope of heroism. That's giving to get. It's serving to be celebrated. And essentially, it's making it about us. And when we make our own worship about us and our comfort or what it pays off for us, that worship is worthless. Why? Because it's not pure. See, pure worship is directed by God and offered to God. And if our service is offered in hopes that we get something, then we aren't offering it to God. Widows and orphans in their distress, anyone in their distress, have nothing to offer us. So when we serve them so they can experience the grace and love of God the same way we did, then we have made it about God, and our worship is therefore acceptable to Him and transmittable as a kingdom value to others. By the way, you know who typically exemplifies this type of acceptable service day in and day out. It's moms who serve their families. Think about it. They lose sleep to nurse sick kids that can't say thank you. They cook good meals that they know are going to be complained about. And sometimes they silently give up their portions so the very people who are complaining can have their fill. Then... They rise the next day and do it all again. They do laundry knowing that no one's ever going to say thank you. They lose sleep and sacrifice their comfort to meet the needs of their typically thankless families. Not today. Today we say thank you. But it's that kind of service that pleases God. So well done, moms. We don't say it enough, but we are so grateful that you are transmitting the life that we should be living. Third and finally, we have to consider how we protect our hearts. Look back at verse 27 again. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, hear me out on this. We need to think through the implications of James' teaching here. Worship can simply be defined as a heartfelt declaration of worth. Worship declares the worth of what we worship. So we worship God from a pure heart because He is worthy. Now the Scripture teaches us that we are only able to worship God with a pure heart because He has changed our hearts. The prophet Ezekiel tells us that God removes a heart of stone, our hearts of stone, which, by the way, are 
exceedingly selfish and indifferent to God. That's the heart of stone. And he replaces that heart with a heart of flesh, which is alive to the desires of God and the wonder of his grace. And it's our new hearts that recognize his worth and enable us to worship. Now, where did these new hearts come from? Jesus paid an unimaginable price to give us these new hearts. And so James is saying to cherish the new heart God has given us and do our part to protect them. Solomon had the same message in Proverbs 4.23. He wrote, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So Jesus cleansed our hearts. And what James is telling us is that now we must do our part. We must step up and keep them clean. How do we do that? How do we keep our hearts clean? I think it begins with understanding how they get dirty. In James' word, transformed hearts can become polluted by the world. Now the word for world there refers to the material world around us. And in the material world, it's the material that's valued. You say, well, I don't... I think you're implying that maybe I'm, I'm greedy or materialistic. Well, you may not be. But like the lungs can be polluted by secondhand smoke, our hearts can be polluted by secondhand materialism. If we don't protect our hearts, then what happens is we gradually, imperceptibly elevate the material above the spiritual. That, that's what's happening if you spend your time only pursuing your dreams and desires in this life to the neglect of the building of your spiritual life, to the neglect of your spiritual well-being. If you're not engaged in protecting your heart by reading God's Word, spending time in prayer, worshiping with other people, and living in light of eternity, then... What James is telling us is that you're being polluted by the second-hand smoke of materialism and it's rendering your worship unacceptable. Now, hear me. I I'm not saying that your dreams and desires are not important. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is our dreams and desires should be informed and formed by God's Word, by God's dreams and desires for us. And so when we're pursuing His dream for our lives, then we are, by default, protecting our hearts. But, if we fail to engage on a spiritual level, feeding our spirits with the truth of His Word then that second-hand materialism can get us. How do you know if you are protecting your heart? Paul said that those who 
don't have their mind fixed firmly on God have it fixed firmly on the earth. So those who are not protecting their hearts, their minds are fixed firmly on the things of this world. So the question is, what is your mind fixed on? Is it the things of God? Building His kingdom? Or is it the things of this world? And building yours? You want to get real about your worship? Let me challenge you to take the test. Evaluate your behavior. Are you guarding your heart? Are you serving those in need and expecting nothing in return? And are you keeping a tight rein on your tongue? Resisting the urge to strike and spew its poison and embracing the opportunity to leverage its power to build others up and to build God's kingdom. It's critical if we want to get real about our faith to understand how our behavior affects our worship. Is our worship acceptable to God? Now, I need to say this. These things that I've talked about, they don't make you acceptable. Jesus showed you that you are acceptable by dying for you. The scripture says that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies with God, Christ died for us. You are acceptable to God. He loved you enough to die for you. But what James is saying is that in light of the price Christ paid for us, we need to do our part to make our worship acceptable to God. Because when our worship is acceptable, His kingdom comes on earth just as it is in heaven. Will you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that our ability to worship you comes from you. We know, Lord, that by default, our hearts are heart of stone. Our hearts are completely obsessed with ourselves in building our kingdoms. But Lord, we know that with Jesus, by faith in Jesus, those old hearts of stone are replaced with a heart of flesh that lives in wonder of your grace and mercy. So Father, I, I pray that we will live out of that heart of flesh. Father, if there's anyone who's gathered around their screen today and 
they have not accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, I, I pray today that they would hear the message that you love them, that they are acceptable, and that Jesus died for them. And they'll open their hearts in wonder to the grace of your salvation. And Father, for those of us who have had our hearts purified through faith in Jesus. I pray that we would have the courage to evaluate how we respond to your word, how we live out our faith. Lord, teach us to cooperate with your plan to keep a tight rein on our tongues. Help us to be proactively searching for ways to serve, to be generous with our time, talent, and treasure so that our right hand doesn't know what our left hand is doing. And Lord, help us to be diligent about keeping watch over our hearts. Because Lord, we want to live in purity before you so that our worship is acceptable. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. By your spirit, we ask that you enable us to live by its light. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us today in worship. I'm trusting that if any of you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, or if you want us to stand with you in prayer as you make the journey to get real in your faith, I, I want you to be sure and email us. You can email prayer at skycrestfamily.org and we get those uh, prayer requests and we'll stand with you, we'll pray with you. And I, I want you to know that you are the most important thing that we're about. We want you to be all that God has called you to be and we'll walk with you on this journey. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you have a fabulous Mother's Day. God bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.